Palace Perspective is brought to you by Palace Capital Advisors, a comprehensive wealth management firm with locations in the Northeast, specializing in financial and estate planning solutions, investment management strategies, and family office services for high net worth families across the country. I'd like to thank everybody for joining us here on this special edition of the Palace Podcast. My name is Rich Mullen. I'm the CEO and founding partner of Palace Capital Advisors. We have a special guest here with us today, Chris Miller and our CIO, Mark Bogar. Just before we get started, I'd like to let everybody know that this will be recorded and the recording will be sent via email this week and it can be accessed on the Palace website under the webcast section. We'll also be uploading the audio to the Palace Perspective, our podcast series, and you can listen to that anytime on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and all other major podcast streaming platforms. So let's get started. Welcome, everybody. As the uh, Russian-Ukraine crisis intensifies and uncertainty builds across the global markets, we put together a special edition of our webcast, The Palace Perspective, and brought together some of our thoughts here regarding the direct and indirect risks, be it sanctions, oil prices, commodities, investor sentiment, and other topics that we'll touch on today. And of course, it goes without saying that this situation is very fluid and things can change by the hour. So I said, we're joined here today uh, by Chris Miller. And before we get started, I'd just like to introduce Chris formally. Chris is an assistant professor of international history at the Fletcher School at Tufts University and a co-director of the school's Russia and Eurasian program. He's the author of Putinomics, Power and Money in the Resurgence of Russia, and another publication, another book, The Struggle to Save the Soviet Economy. He's a frequent commentator on CNBC, CBS, Bloomberg, and the New York Times. He's previously served as the associate director of the Brady Johnson Program, Grand Strategy at Yale, a lecturer at the New Economic School in Moscow, and a visiting researcher at the Carnegie Moscow Center, a research associate at Brookings Institute, and as a fellow at the German Marshall Fund's Transatlantic Academy. Chris also received his PhD and MA from Yale University and a BA in history from Harvard University. So we're very excited to have him lend his perspective here on a very, very dynamic and unfortunate situation. Let me remind everybody at the end, we'll be doing Q&A in the second half of the webinar, and you can type your questions in the Q&A box at the bottom of your screen. So let's get started, Chris. Why don't we just take a minute here And if you could maybe frame the situation for us, as I said, things are kind of fluid, but kind of kick us off here with your assessment of the crisis in Ukraine as as we sit here today. Well, I think if you step back to where we were one month ago, most people uh, are surprised that we find ourselves in the biggest land war in Europe since uh, arguably 1945. And it's a crisis that has no obvious end in sight at this point. It's It will come to end at some point, but it's not clear when or how. It's also obvious that the Russian government uh, vastly overestimated its ability to bring Ukraine to heel. The goal of uh, this invasion and the words of Vladimir Putin on the evening that he declared war was uh, threefold. One was to turn Ukraine into a neutral country, making it impossible for Ukraine to align itself with the West or to join NATO. Second uh, was to demilitarize Ukraine by reducing Ukraine's military capacities. And then third is what the Russians call denazifying Ukraine. That's the word they use. Now, of course, Ukraine has a Jewish president, so there aren't that many uh, Nazis around. But what they mean by behind this sort of propagandistic rhetoric is they want to control who's in power in Kiev. They want to toss out the existing government and put their own puppets 
in place. That was the goal that uh, Putin articulated the night he started the war. That's been the goal he has repeated every time he's spoken publicly since then. Uh, and it's already clear on just day 10 of the war that there's no chance Russia achieves all of those goals. The Russian leadership was counting on uh, Ukrainian government collapsing quickly, Ukraine putting up hardly any military resistance and the Russian army waltzing into Kiev. That was a naive belief on which to start the war, but all the evidence we have from Russian pr prisoners of war to the structure of Russian military operations suggests that the Russians really did believe that. And so now Russia finds itself in a conflict in which Ukraine is fighting back hard uh, with more advanced military equipment than Russia had really bargained for. The Russian military has struggled to do basic things like uh, gain control of the airspace, which most military analysts thought they would do very early on. And although Russia is taking territory in the south of Ukraine, its advances around Kiev and Kharkiv, the second biggest city in Ukraine, have ground almost completely to a halt. So the war isn't over in military terms, but it's going far more slowly. Uh, and it's a far tougher fight than Russia bargained for. And in addition to that, the economic cost of the war to Russia is far larger than Russia was counting on. Russians knew there would be some sort of financial sanctions from the West, but they were completely shocked, totally unprepared for the sanctioning of the Russian central bank and the disastrous effect that's had on the Russian currency and Russia's, uh, Russia's capital markets more generally. So Russia's got a war that's going far worse than it expected. It's got economic costs at home that are far more severe than it expected. And so the question now is, can we envision a scenario over the coming weeks, a couple of months by which Russia winds back some of its war aims and we reach a ceasefire deal that both sides would would uh, believe is in their own interest. We're not there right now. Russia says it's still fighting for drastic changes to Ukraine's constitution, but it, it's a plausible, I think, likely that as the war grinds on, Russia will, Russia will realize that its expansive war aims are simply impossible to achieve, and it has to wind back its demands and eventually call a halt to its offensive. Interesting. Mark? Yeah, do you think on the financial sanctions side, given that it is more severe than they anticipated. But how, how much do the uh, sanction the oligarchs and the people around Putin um, actually affect the situation? Or is that kind of off to the side? Or does that really have an effect? Well, I think that's very much off to the side. If, if you were to imagine the logic by which sanctioning an oligarch would change Russian foreign policy, it would go like this. You sanction an oligarch, the oligarch loses access to foreign financing or the price of the, the, the shares of the company that that oligarch controls plummet on the Moscow or London Stock Exchange, and then that oligarch calls Putin and asks for a change in Russian foreign policy. Well, that oligarch would be jailed in a matter of seconds. And the reality is that since Putin took power 20 years ago, there are a string of Russian oligarchs who have been jailed, exiled, or found to have committed suicide outside of London. Everyone who has uh, money in Russia knows that they keep control of their assets only thanks to the ascent of the Kremlin. Uh, and so the ability for Russian oligarchs to influence the Kremlin is close to zero. The influence runs almost exclusively in the other direction. And I think more generally, Mark, there's a, there's a misconception uh, in the West that Putin is primarily after money. And the reality is Putin doesn't need to worry about money. He owns the entire country. He has access to whatever assets in the country he wants. He can expropriate whomever he wants. So questions of, of millions or even a couple billion dollars are, are secondary importance when you've got direct control over an economy with a trillion dollars worth of GDP. There's no asset in Russia that Putin can't have if he wants it tomorrow. We, we think that Russia, uh, Putin is trying to maximize 
GDP or maximize his per- personal wealth. In reality, you know, Putin is a czar and, and czars don't maximize things like that. They maximize their power and glory in the international stage. And Putin sees that through the lens of territorial conquest and control over his neighbors. And I think that's why so many people in the West have really misread what Putin's up to. If you thought Putin was trying to maximize anything related to financial or economic variables, you'd really struggle to explain any decision that he's made over the past couple of months. So, I mean, an extension of that then too would be additional sanctions, then additional sanctions, whether they direct the oil or what have you, would that have little effect then if, you know, his ultimate goal is, you know, more land grab and power then yeah, any chance that additional sanctions can have bite or are there any sanctions that could really, really get to him? Well, I think by far the most important factor in his calculus is the status of the military campaign, whether Russia is succeeding in taking territories and what losses Russia is taking along the way. I think sanctions do on the margin impact his calculus. It's gotten far more complicated for him to keep stability at home in Russia simply because inflation is shooting upwards, living standards are going to fall once you adjust for rising prices. And we're already seeing the impact of export controls ripple across the Russian economy. Car factories are shuttering, for example. We're going to have the entire industrial sector freezing up over the next couple of months, which will cause uh, a lot of angry employees whose salaries aren't getting paid. All that makes his life more difficult. But ultimately, his goal is simply to keep the domestic situation managed so it doesn't disrupt his ability to exercise power at home or deploy it abroad. So I I don't think we should assume that any sort of new level of sanction is going to, on its own, force Putin to change his mind. But certainly sanctioning the energy sector would complicate his balancing act even even more, more substantially than the existing sanctions have. And oil, of course, being Russia's largest export Taxing oil is the most important input into the Russian government budget. If Russian oil exports are choked off, this will make life far, far more difficult for Putin. What are the downstream implications, oil talking, but in terms of European banks, European energy policy, how does that flow, whether European banks and SWIFT? It's a very complicated topic, but are there a couple, you know, main bullet points of what are maybe some of the downstream impacts, economic impacts on European energy sector, European banks, et cetera? Well, the first most direct impact is on commodity prices, which we've seen already reflected in financial markets. And this is not just oil, natural gas. Certainly, they've rallied very hard over the past month, but also metals of all sorts. Russia is a major export, exporter of everything from copper to aluminum to nickel. All of this is being impacted by the war. In addition, agricultural commodities, both Russia and Ukraine are major exporters of wheat, for example. And the war is threatening the planting season this spring in Ukraine. And the fighting in the Black Sea is also threatening the transport of grain from both Russia and Ukraine out through the Black Sea to major markets. And right now, Russia and Ukraine are major suppliers of wheat to countries like Egypt, uh, Lebanon, and Turkey. And so the Black Sea trade routes are really quite important. If you can't get a peaceful Black Sea by later this year, it'll be very difficult to ship any of the grain out of Russia. So commodities are are the first and most direct impact. Secondly, on on European firms and, and global firms more generally, but Europe's most exposed, anyone who is selling to Russia at the start of the year is going to be selling far less to Russia right now. It's hard to make transactions go through given the number of banks that are under sanction. Even if your transactions can go through, your Russian counterparties have much less money and are buying much less of whatever you are selling. So the more exposed you are to Russian consumers or Russian firms, the, the bigger to your sales are going to be. In terms of direct impact on European banks, uh, it's really only three countries in Europe that have a major uh, amount of exposure to Russia, France, 
Italy and Austria. There's a number of Austrian banks that have major subsidiaries in Russia. And we've seen, unsurprisingly, the share prices of the relevant banks take a hit, but it doesn't seem like um, from Russia exposure directly, there ought to be a major uh, impact on other European banks. I think indirectly, there's a question of will the increasing commodity prices drastically reduce European growth or even throw Europe into a recession? If so, that would have a, an indirect impact on, on banks across the continent. But in terms of direct exposure, the number of banks that have really sizable exposure is, is quite limited. And then finally, to add to that, there's a, a, a silver lining in certain sectors uh, in Europe where you're going to see a lot more investment over the coming years because of uh, the conflict. Energy is going to get a ton of new investment. Uh, we've already seen uh, just this weekend, Denmark announced plans to fully wean itself off of energy. Germany is expected to announce a similar plan shortly across the continent. Uh, we expect countries that do import energy from Russia to announce uh, pathways for weaning themselves off Russian oil, gas, and coal. This is going to be costly for the continent as a whole, but will involve a fair amount of investment in, in, in the energy sector to make uh, this possible. In addition to that, I'd add defense. Uh, Germany has announced that it's going to spend $100 billion on defense. Uh, over the coming years, Denmark as well announced a 0.5% uh, increase in its defense budget. That's a lot for a small country. And across the continent, we're going to see more spending on defense as everyone tries to prepare themselves for the Russian threat that they weren't uh, previously ready for. So there are going to be some uh, upside surprises, if you will, on the economic front, but certainly the increase in commodity prices is going to have a negative effect across Europe. Chris, if I could ask a question, I think the net unattended consequence of this is the U.S., U.K., and the E.U. have become, you know, more unified than ever before, certainly post-World War II. But what do you think the effects are on this in terms of the Russia-China relationship? How does that develop and strengthen or, you know, cause some issues for the situation down the road? Well, it's been an embarrassing two weeks for the Chinese. It's, it's not clear whether Beijing understood that there would be a war. If they didn't think there, there would be a war, they were surprised. If they did think there would be a war, they likely thought it would be a fast war and that Russia wouldn't completely bungle initial stages of the operation. So either way, China's government looks like it was confused or misguided in giving Russia the green to go forward, which Xi Jinping very clearly did in his meeting with Vladimir Putin in early February. So from China's perspective, their closest friend on the international stage finds itself in a very complicated position. Moreover, on the economic front, the Western sanctions that have been applied on Russia create a whole array of difficulties for Chinese firms. China doesn't want a, a huge increase in commodities prices. China imports many of the commodities that Russia exports and will be paying more as a result. In addition, China has to implement many of the, the sanctions that the U.S. and Europe have imposed because some of these sanctions are secondary sanctions. Chinese banks are afraid of getting wrapped up in sanctions violations. And so we're going to see Chinese firms implementing U.S. and European sanctions in ways that will make China's government very uncomfortable. They know they have to do it, but they also know that the fact that they're following U.S. sanctions rules shows to the world and to Russia that they're willing to put their own economy in front of what they described as their all-weather relationship with their ostensible Russian friends. So China's political position is in no better uh, shape than it was two weeks ago. At this point, I think China very clearly wishes it hadn't invaded. From Russia's perspective, they're vastly more reliant on China now than they were before and far less able to uh, shape the course of their relationship with China than previously. Russia's bet everything in military terms, economic terms on this operation 
in Ukraine on the invasion. And so it has very few resources, whether it's diplomatic bandwidth, whether it's money, whether it's military forces to deploy anywhere else in the world right now. And that includes vis-a-vis China. So right now, Russians has to accept whatever kind of offers or demands of it. And that's not a comfortable position for anyone in Moscow to be in. I think the other factor related to China that is worth thinking about is Taiwan, because it's certainly the case that 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 the Chinese government was looking at this conflict over the past couple of weeks and thinking about ways that it might provide lessons for China in case China decides to do something similar in Taiwan. And I was struck a couple of weeks ago by the number of op-eds I was reading arguing that the war in Ukraine will make it more likely that China uh, invades Taiwan. But my reading certainly over the past 10 days is that China's gotten a reminder of just how risky military operations are. And it's, it's worth remembering that Russia's military has been deployed a lot over the past two decades. It was deployed in Georgia, deployed in Syria, deployed previously in Ukraine. They had a lot of training and were vastly more ready for a conflict than China's military, which has not really been used since 1979. So if you're Xi Jinping thinking about a potential invasion of Taiwan, you're going to be even more cautious in your estimation of whether your military forces are ready for this type of operation than you would have been a couple of weeks ago. So in that sense, I think Chinese move on Taiwan has become a lot less likely because the success of such an operation has to be called much more into question now than anyone would have called into question several weeks ago. That's very interesting. Mark, do you have any follow-up questions on that? Not uh, directly, but just to remind everyone in the audience, we've gotten some great questions from the audience. We're going to move to those in like a couple minutes here. We'll kind of group the most popular ones and we'll make sure those get I Maybe before we shift to those, just one more from me on the broader power policy of Europe that years ago was considered green to shut down nuclear plants. And we can debate whether that's green or not, but the decision was made to shut down nuclear. But now Germany has indicated, you know, that, well, maybe we'll, we'll keep those on for a while longer. Do you see any implications of the Russian moves just for more energy independence? And as a result, maybe actually nuclear lasts longer than, than what had been indicated just even a few years ago. Yeah, it does seem like nuclear is back on the table in Germany. It's worth remembering that across Europe, there's very different views on nuclear. France, of course, is trying already to vastly increase its use of nuclear power for electricity generation. But in Germany, it does seem like it'll be difficult to wean themselves off Russian gas without some some use of nuclear power, at least in the short term. I think we're also going to see a lot more of Central Europe buying liquefied natural gas from the United States, which there already is some of, but that's going to increase substantially. And now there's a very clear geopolitical imperative to buy gas from your friends, not from uh, your enemies. And then finally, I think we, we should expect also a substantial increase in investment uh, in Europe in solar and wind. You can't replace all gas, at least today with solar and wind, but a lot of gas you can. And that, especially if you look at the green political party in the governing coalition in Germany and German politics in general being very supportive of carbon neutrality. A big part of the plan is going to be to more rapidly phase in more solar and more wind to reduce overall gas consumption. Interesting. Mark, we have one last quick question, then we'll go to the audience. You know, Chris, I know, I think you're getting ready to uh, write a book about the chip and semiconductors. And I think what's kind of interesting as, you know, we kind of move here in the U.S. to ban high-tech exports to such as semiconductors to Russia, and Russia's attempted shift away from a fossil fuel economy, they're definitely going to face tech headwinds. But now, you know, going back to the China relationship, it seems as though they're going to have to turn more and more towards China for their technology. And is is that an adequate replacement for the caliber of the U.S. technology or U.S. chips? 
it's it's not in most spheres and it's it's worth noting that the technology restrictions aren't just american it's us european union uk japan south korea taiwan singapore australia so this this is almost all of the key technological players in the world and the one that's really missing is Israel. I, I suspect that the Israelis refused to publicly sign up, but also agreed to privately implement this type of restriction as well. So it's it's very difficult to imagine in most spheres, Russia finding alternative suppliers. And we're already seeing headlines in Russian newspapers of, for example, the Russian car industry shutting down because they can't get the components they need. And the components in question are semiconductors, the same chip shortages that U.S. car makers have faced uh, over the past year or so. Russian car makers will be facing for the foreseeable future. When you look across Russian industry, which has been over the past three decades, integrating more and more with Western supply chains, it's going to be extraordinarily difficult for almost any sector to completely turn to Chinese sources, whether it's hardware, whether it's machine tools, whether it's software, whatever you're looking at, that's just an extraordinarily difficult lift. And I think what this means for Russia is that unless they cut some sort of deal and get the sanctions lifted soon, which I think is unlikely, uh, they're going to face the deindustrialization of their economy. It will just be extraordinarily hard to keep, for example, a car industry running uh, if your only potential supplier is China. Today, China is a small player in the global car industry. No Germany, no Japan, no US. Well, it's hard to run a car factory. Interesting. So, Mark, why don't you turn to the audience or viewership here and, and see what kind of questions we have out there for Chris. Right, great. Yes, I have a bunch of questions, so please keep them coming. One category is certainly NATO, maybe. I'll just read read one here. What is the process for Ukraine to join NATO? Is that universally accepted in the West as a good idea? Was the timeline two years or more? And I'm going to add a second one. Does Chris think this aggression would ever expand into NATO countries? So kind of what is, you know... Ukraine's ability to join NATO, but then if that move happens, what what might Putin do with that kind of move? Well, there's there's been a long debate over the past really 30 years about how Ukraine should guarantee its security. It, it's worth remembering that when the Soviet Union collapsed in 1991, 1992, four successor states emerged with a portion of the Soviet Union's nuclear arsenal, and Ukraine was one of them. And the U.S., along with Russia, both agreed for a, a set of weak verbal security guarantees for Ukraine in 1994 as part of the process by which Ukraine gave up its nuclear weapons. Now, many Ukrainians regret that decision, thinking if they had nuclear weapons, they'd be more able to defend themselves against Russia. So the question of how to provide for Ukraine security is, is a, a longstanding one. And Ukrainians, for a long time, have considered NATO membership as one potential way. Until very recently, it was a really divisive issue in Ukrainian politics. The population was roughly split half in favor, half against. Over the past couple of years, though, it really swung in favor of joining NATO as Russia escalated its threats against Ukraine. Now, I think with the war, it's difficult to see very far in the future as to what the post-war Ukrainian state will look like. So I, I, I struggle to have any confidence about where we'll be in one or two years' time on that type of question. I, I will say that for Russia, keeping Ukraine out of NATO is a extraordinarily high priority. And when Russia thinks about potential ceasefires or peace deals that it might sign vis-a-vis Ukraine, making sure Ukraine doesn't join NATO is near the top of that list. But even though Ukraine hasn't joined NATO and doesn't look likely to join NATO in the immediate future, I think the thing to note, and we're already seeing evidence of this on the battlefields of Ukraine, is that Ukrainian 
the Ukrainian military has been transformed by its partnership with NATO. There's been military trainers from the US, UK, other countries working in Ukraine for some time. Ukrainian forces have benefited from training with, with NATO forces. They benefited from an extraordinary amount of military equipment being transferred from NATO countries. There have been 17,000 anti-tank missiles transferred to Ukraine in the past couple of weeks from Western countries. The numbers are really extraordinary. And so even though Ukraine it hasn't and won't join NATO soon, the reality is that its military is fighting far better than it would have, thanks to NATO help. So, so the Russians are, in some ways aren't wrong to be worried that Ukraine is getting closer to NATO because we're seeing evidence of that currently in the fighting right now. Ukraine wouldn't be as effective in stopping the Russian advances without that. On the question of would Russia ever attack a NATO country, I doubt it. The reason the Russians are so fixated on stopping other countries from joining NATO is because they know joining NATO is a serious measure. The Russians understand that an attack on NATO would bring a U.S. military response. They understand that a U.S. military response could involve nuclear weapons. It's a very serious thing. And there's no one in Russia, I think, under any illusions about what that would entail. For the same reason, the U.S. has been very hesitant to let any other NATO country or itself get involved directly militarily in Ukraine, precisely for the same reason. It's very difficult to control any escalation when you have uh, direct fighting between NATO and Russian forces. Makes sense. Makes sense. As you mentioned, nuclear weapons, I'll read one here at the end that's just, you know, summarizes multiple ones I've seen. If this is about power for Putin, what are the risks for the deployment of tactical nuclear weapons if the conventional war goes badly? And what would be the consequence of that? Well, there's been more discussion of, of this prospect in recent days. I still think it's quite unlikely. The, the logic would go something like this. If the war is going badly for Russia, and it already is going not very well, but if the offensive in the South in particular grinds to a halt, and Russia wants to show to the Ukrainian military and population that it's willing to escalate even more than it has already, you could use a tactical nuclear weapon, perhaps even use it in an unpopulated area, kill hardly anyone or very few people. And the smallest tactical nuclear weapons are uh, relatively small in terms of their explosion. But in doing so, demonstrate your resolve and your willingness to escalate and frighten the Ukrainians into submission. You know, there's, there's a logic behind that. It's a pretty grim logic. And I think it's a logic that would be unclear whether it would actually produce the results you wanted. If you used a small technical up in, in Ukraine, are you likely to get a more or less intense Ukrainian resistance? Well, it's hard, hard to know. Hard to know what Putin thinks the answer is. Hard to know what the answer actually is. It's also hard to know how the Russian military and the Russian populace would respond. In the Russian telling, this is the war of liberation. Russia is trying to liberate Ukrainians who are the natural brethren of the Russian from the Nazis who govern them. That's what you learn if you watch Russian state on TV. And I, as part of my line of work, I have the distinct displeasure of watching Russian state TV for at least a couple minutes every day to learn what's on it. And I can tell you it's a very different narrative from uh, what I read in, in the U.S. news. But if it's, it's very difficult to describe your use of tactical nuclear weapons on Ukraine as part of a war of liberation of the Ukrainian people. And I think the, the Russian military, the Russian populace would react quite negatively if, if that were to be employed. And finally, you don't know how NATO would respond. If the U.S. and NATO can still escalate in a variety of different ways, and the rest of the world would look uh, very negatively upon that type of move. If you imagine the Chinese, for example, looking at uh, a Russian use of tactical nuclear weapons, there's no way that the Chinese would be supportive of that type of measure. That's exactly what the Chinese fear in terms of uncontrolled escalation of this conflict. So given that the benefits are highly uncertain at best, and the costs, I think, are very real, it seems implausible to me that Putin would go down that direction.
Well, let's hope you're, hope you're right on that one. Makes, makes sense, but thank you. Rich, I've got a few others. Do you, do you have any you want to get out or shall I keep going? Yeah, get, let's get to the, the questions that have been submitted if we can. Yeah, this one speaks to what I was somewhat getting at with the goal oligarchs. Maybe do they have an opportunity to do something with Putin? This one's like, if Russians are ever able to shake off their history of absolutist government, do you believe that the people will be able to exercise democratic behavior given very little experience with it historically? They didn't appear to, they didn't appear to do well in this regard in the late 80s, early 90s. Sorry, there's that one combined with the other one I saw was more, it, it is the, the longer this goes, the more real information actually gets to the Russian people. Is there a, a tipping point as well that actually could get Putin out of power that I know he's done some awful things of being where he is in power, but maybe is there a, you know, critical mass of, of people and powerful people that could actually move him over? Well, if you look at how coups in Russia have normally materialized, what you find is that changes in power don't come from popular protests generally in Russia. They come from shifts in the security services or shifts in the power brokers in the Kremlin. And so if you're thinking about ways in which Putin might leave the scene dead or alive, that's where I think you'd want to look. Other Kremlin elites who have the institutional legitimacy, who have the connections in the security services to confidently be able to pull off such an operation and know that they'd be able to consolidate power afterwards. Now, it's almost impossible to put any sort of numerical odds on the likelihood of that happening this month or this year. But it seems undeniable that the likelihood of some sort of palace coup is substantially higher now than it was two weeks ago before the war started for a couple of reasons. One, the economy is a mess and everyone knows it. Two, the war is shambolic and Putin looks ridiculous for bungling the war. Three, we know anecdotally, but with high confidence, I can say this, that the Russian elite is much more divided about this war than it was about the annexation of Crimea in 2014. Then it was 90% of the population, if not more, in favor. Now I can say anecdotally, we don't have good polling on this question, unfortunately, in Russia, but anecdotally, it's, it's universally agreed that there are a lot of Russians who two weeks ago were in the pro-government camp who are now in the anti-war camp. And this is an important development. It suggests that even within the Russian government, even potentially within the security services, there's a lot of discomfort as to where this is headed and how badly it was managed. So I think the prospect of a, a palace coup is certainly not my my base case over the next couple of months, but also certainly impossible to rule out. But I think that if you were to envision a government after a palace coup, I don't think you could expect that it would be drastically more democratic perhaps uh, less repressive, at least in the short run. Uh, certainly, if there were to be a coup, it would be a coup launched in part to end the war and to try to wind back some of the sanctions that are that have been sparked by the war. Um, but I don't think we should expect any broader shifts in the way Russian politics operates. The reality is that there's very little history in Russia of democratic governance. The institutions of democratic governance have not been developed at all. And even if a palace coup were to happen, it would happen not because the populace was rising up and uh, not because there was sort of a Democrat opposition to Putin, but because a number of security chieftains got fed up with him and wanted to put a different security chieftain in his place. So I think I would be skeptical of seeing any change in power as evidence of a big positive shift in uh, Russia's historical trajectory, even though it would almost certainly be good news from the perspective of ending the war sooner rather than... Of course, I actually do have a, uh, another question going back to the oil topic for a second. I think one of the things that's happened here, unintended consequences, has created, you know, kind of a more renewing the talks of the Iran nuclear deal. And that seems to have kind of been 
I think, escalated or rushed along. Obviously, Iran has about 180 million barrels of oil, I'm told, ready to go. And then the other one that I thought was a real surprise was the U.S. Senate delegation to Venezuela. And then I was reading a little bit about the fact that you know, this is Moscow's like one remaining ally in the world, and there may be some effort to kind of isolate them. Do you have any comment on those two topics and how they've kind of come uh, up as a potential answer to increasing our supply of oil? Well, it's it's clear that as the U.S. moves towards a, an oil embargo, which, uh, as I understand, looks likely to pass pretty soon, and then potentially beyond that to uh, more complete sanctions on all of Russia's oil exports, uh, the price of oil is going to go up further and it's already up. And the Biden administration is trying to find any alternative sources of oil supply to bring on the market to limit the increase in, in prices. And there are only so many places you can turn. Iran has a lot of oil production. It can ramp up if the sanctions are lifted and the Iran nuclear deal is put back in place. So that's, I think, pretty clearly why the Biden administration is trying to accelerate those talks. Venezuela is a, a similar story. The U.S. could lift sanctions and bring a fair amount of Venezuelan oil production back online. It would take some time, but it, it could happen. And there's also discussion of Biden going to visit Saudi Arabia, which also has some spare capacity, not a lot, but some uh, that could be brought online. If you put all of these different pieces together, it still seems unlikely we're going to be able to replace Russian oil exports in the short term. But it also uh, is possible, and I'm pretty confident the Biden administration is thinking in the, in these terms, that if you were to end up with a complete uh, complete set of sanctions against Russian oil exports, you could phase them in over time. So they wouldn't go from 100% to 0% in just a couple of days. You could phase it in over one, two, three, four years, which is exactly how it was done when sanctions were first placed on Iran about a decade ago. Now, that's still not going to solve the problem of high gasoline prices in the U.S. in the short term. Probably not going to be fast enough to provide uh, substantial price relief before the midterms, which is how the Biden administration is, no doubt. But but certainly there is there are some steps the U.S. can take to push other countries or to make it possible for other countries to bring a bit more oil onto the market as Russia sells. Yeah, that's an interesting dynamic to the, the Saudi relationship, too, with Iran. They're worried watching that very closely with the, the nuclear uh, potential that may exist there. And then the U.S. just recently condemning the assassination of that reporter. There's kind of cool relationships in, in Saudi Arabia a little bit. Some of those fences may need to be mended here. Mark, guys, let's go back to the the audience. Yeah, so we have a couple more topics, but we definitely have a little bit more time. If there's any more questions, please get them in. So this one's more on uh, financial systems. Will these events mark the beginning of a bipolar financial system with the U.S. and China offering competing finance, payment, trade, and currency system? Yeah, I guess that's versus, you know, the almighty dollar versus now a bifurcation into different different systems across the world. What are your thoughts on that? Well, it's possible we'll see more use of Chinese payments platforms for Russia-China trade, but it also seems pretty clear that all of Russia's efforts, what Russia described as sanctions proofing that it undertook over the past couple of years, ended up being pretty unimpressive. Russia hasn't done anything to sanction proof its economy. And that's true for Russia-China trade, even though China is not imposing any sanctions on Russia. So I, I think we should certainly expect to see more conversation about the topics. Maybe we'll see more shifting to Chinese-controlled payments platforms. But is this going to have a real impact on, on Russia using more renminbi? I'm somewhat skeptical that it is. In, in order to use a lot more MNB. Ultimately, we need looser capital controls in China to make Chinese capital uh, markets re really liquid and really attractive to other investors. And I see no evidence uh, from the Chinese side that, that we're headed uh, in that direction. Chinese are happy to have capital inflows, but they're still very worried about capital outflows. And that's ultimately what they need to develop really sophisticated capital markets. So 
I'm ultimately skeptical that we're going to head seriously in that direction, even though I expect a lot more talk from both China and Russia on that front. I would concur. It'd be difficult for a non-free-flowing currency to country to take take over. But you're right; they're gonna they're they move on something, but it could be difficult to be very large. Actually, we've talked a lot of different scenarios and different topics, but I, I don't know if we touched on maybe the timing. One is what would Putin do if this invasion got stretched out for months and months? So was well, the months and months, or kind of what is your view on the timing of of how this is resolved? Is it is it weeks? Is it months? Is it a year? What are your thoughts on it? Well, it's it's hard to have high confidence because it depends both on political developments in Russia and in Ukraine. You need both parties to agree to cut a deal that would ultimately end the war. It seems to me that right now both parties are willing to keep fighting. Uh, the Ukrainians certainly are about to surrender, and Russia. Although it's disappointed with the war effort thus far, it still is taking territory in the south of the country. And I think from Putin's perspective, he's better off trying for a couple more weeks, seeing what he can gain on the battlefield before cutting a deal at this point. Because a deal at this point would only give Russia a tiny fraction of its initial war aims. It wouldn't change the government in Kiev. It might not even be able to get the government in Kiev to agree to make Ukraine a neutral country. So if if Russia were to cut a deal now, it would face the question at home of, well, what are you actually what did you actually achieve from this war? The answer would be not much. But I also don't think this is a war that's going to last for years, at least in its active fighting phase. The problem for Russia is that it's just too costly uh, to maintain. Economically, we're just beginning to understand the full impact of the sanctions across the Russian economy. And I think the Russian government is also no more advanced than the rest of us in, in taking account of the full economic cost. The social cost and the political cost to average Russians as their incomes fall has not is not yet visible. We don't yet see, for example, workers on strike over their salaries not getting paid, but we're going to see more of that over the coming uh, months and weeks. And then finally, the, the price for Russia in terms of body bags is really quite substantial as well. We don't really have great visibility into Russian casualties, but it seems likely that they've suffered at least 1,000, perhaps several thousand soldiers killed. That's a lot for just 10 days. And if this rate continues over the coming weeks and months, it will become, I think, simply too costly in political terms to continue. There's Russians are willing to tolerate low incomes. We've learned that over the last decade when Russians got poorer in inflation term, inflation adjusted terms rather than richer. But I don't think we should assume that Russians are willing to uh, tolerate an unending flow of body bags. And in fact, over the past decade, in all of the Kremlin's previous foreign wars, they've taken extraordinary efforts to cover up losses in their military. They've uh, either denied that losses were happening or they said they were mercenaries rather than regular soldiers. The Kremlin is clearly very sensitive about soldiers' deaths. And so I think we should assume that as the death count piles up, that will put some pressure on Russia as well. From Ukraine's perspective, it seems like Ukraine has uh, very strong morale right now. It's continuing to get steady streams of supplies from NATO members. And in Kiev and Kharkiv, the two biggest cities of Ukraine, both of them are putting up a, a very impressive resistance against the Russian military. So I don't see the Ukrainians offering substantial new concessions to the Russians in the next couple of weeks either. Perhaps as we get into April, the military situation will end up looking like more of a stalemate. But for now, it seems like Ukraine wants to wait longer to let the cost to Russia become fully visible. And Russia wants to wait a bit longer to see if it can grab any more territory in the south and thereby put some more pressure Makes sense. Chris, what do you think about the fact that Zelensky's risen to this level of popularity on the global front and, you know, has become, you know, just this iconic image and that affecting Putin's ability 
to if Kiev were to fall or what have you to to now decapitate the government by, you know, executing or or, you know, something as dire as that a guy like Zelensky is that I mean, does that backfire in a big way? Is that still on the table in Putin's head? Is he just scorched earth at this point? Or what are your thoughts about a situation in which Kiev falls? Well, there, there have been some reports from U.S. intelligence that that capturing potentially killing Zelensky was part of the Russian war plan. I think if that were to happen now, that would remove any final barriers to maximum sanctions in both uh, the U.S. and the EU. We go to full oil embargo of Russia the day after. The reality is that the the most important part of the war has been Zelensky's ability to control the media environment, not only in Ukraine, but also internationally. His ability to come and become an international hero almost overnight has been crucial to Ukraine's ability to mobilize support from the West and more broadly to impose sanctions on Russia and to keep military supplies coming to Ukraine. If he were to be captured or killed, I do think it would be a, a real turning point, a sort of point of no return in many ways for relations with Russia. I think that would that, that, that would get us to maximum sanctions in a matter of hours or or, or a day or two after such a decision were undertaken by the Interesting. Mark, we have a couple more from the uh, audience here before we, maybe at least one more. I don't know your intimate knowledge of U.S. energy policy, but do you see potential for the Biden administration to reopen the Keystone pipeline? And maybe they anything else broader here, the U.S. on policy and supply. You know, I, I, I don't know anything specific about the Keystone pipeline. I, I, I will say that it, it does seem that the political conversation is now shifted in the U.S. towards how do we find more sources of oil and gas? And that probably means on the margin, looser restrictions um, on oil and gas exploration, um, especially over the next uh, couple of years. Uh, many of you have probably seen the Biden administration yesterday talking about energy independence as a goal, which of course is 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 never going to happen. And it's just a political slogan. But nevertheless, the fact that it's a political slogan that has reemerged also suggests that it will be that there will be a, a more positive domestic environment when it comes to exploration, at least for, I think, natural gas. And the- Mark, it's interesting. Uh, we have some expertise amongst our clientele in the uh, energy sector, and a comment was made about ramping up U.S. domestic production. And if you look at it in the context of an extremely already tight labor market, the comment by this individual was that they couldn't ramp up quick enough, mainly because of a lack of labor and, you know, ability to attract, you know, the manpower to put together a concerted effort to really ramp the U.S. shale up and everything, which I thought was kind of interesting. We're already a very tight labor market here, so none of this is going to move very fast, which I thought was kind of an interesting uh, point. All right. Well, listen, last minute questions, Mark, or should we? I think that's general. We've hit on most of the topics. Oh, actually, yes, we were just doing those last two. These are great questions still coming in. Yeah. Well, now we're really going to test you with U.S. Politics. Well, well, we'll ask your opinion on this one, and you could defer if you like. But what are the implications for a Biden Democratic re-election in the next presidential? I don't know that I've got a more informed opinion than than any of you. I mean, it it does seem like the more the conflict the conflict escalates, the more challenging the inflation picture becomes for the U.S. and and for Biden. I struggle to see that being a, a positive thing. But uh, beyond that, I don't know that I've got any particular additional evidence to to bring to bear. No, fair enough. Fair enough. I think we've hit on most of the topics. All right. See any others awesome. that, that you want to hit on? Nope. I think that's pretty good at this point. I really appreciate it. We've covered a lot of ground. You know, again, this uh, webcast is being recorded and will be available up online as well as on all the major sites, uh, the Apple podcasts and um, Spotify and such. So we encourage you, as well as our website, I should say, we encourage you folks that weren't able to join us to circle back. Chris, I just 
turn to you before I close out. Any parting thoughts here? You know, as you sit here today, we've covered a lot of ground and stuff. Is there any silver linings or optimism or, you know, things that maybe you could leave our, our viewer, our listeners with? Well, to be honest, I don't know that there are that many silver linings from from this situation. I think there's there's worse outcomes and there's less bad outcomes. I think there's still a chance we end up with a less bad outcome if we get some sort of uh, a ceasefire agreement over the, the coming weeks and it doesn't last four months. But I, I think we've we've been reminded two months the ways that geopolitical conflicts can uh, interfere with the, the best late economic plans and that's something we can't ignore, I don't think, going to the future. When I look at, for example, U.S.-China relations, I see plenty of, 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 of comparable uh, potential crises that might emerge. And the assumption that, well, trade ties will make sure that the politicians keep agreeing with each other, that's an argument that I think was often made uh, one month ago by those who thought a war wasn't likely, and it's been uh, proven the wrong argument over the past couple of weeks. Right. Yeah. All right. Well, thank you both. I'd like to just kind of wrap up quickly here with some some thoughts, Mark, maybe still a little bit of your thunder. I mean, U.S. equities have been quite resilient. All things definitely more volatile than we've seen. But we think that this Russian situation has been more of a market event for U.S. firms than an economic one. Employment remains full and growing, it seems. We had strong labor reports here. We do have uh, surging commodity prices for sure, and that's going to eat away at consumer purchasing power and exacerbate the inflation problem, certainly in the short term. We do uh, have to keep in mind, however, that U.S. household and corporate balance sheets have never been stronger, and that's helping to cushion some of the, the rising prices. You know, and energy, interestingly enough, has turned from the unloved sector to a very crowded one. We do think that any resolution could see a sharp correction in energy prices, given the positioning. So we're we're kind of monitoring that situation very closely. And, you know, in terms of sectors that have been in play here, we didn't talk much today, Chris, about cybersecurity, but that seems to be a topic that's risen to the forefront for sure. We're seeing an increase in cybersecurity spending and, of course, defense spending. And we do think that this will have the ultimate effect of supply chain headaches persisting for a bit here. But thank you very much, both of you. Thank you, everybody, for tuning in and listening to this podcast. Uh, We hope to actually have a, an additional Palace Perspective podcast next month on cybersecurity. So stay tuned for that. And as always, Palace is continuing to monitor these economic conditions and trying to react as necessary as things unfold here and be good stewards of our clients' money. Thanks for joining. Appreciate it. Thanks again, Chris. Thanks, Chris. Thank you. And we look forward to another edition of the podcast series down the road. Thank you. And as always, if you would like to discuss your personal financial planning, reach out to us through our website, palacecapitaladvisors.com. That's P-A-L-L-A-S, capitaladvisors.com. We look forward to connecting with you next time on the Palace Perspectives podcast. Palace Capital Advisors, LLC, and its representatives do not provide legal or tax advice. You should consult the legal or tax advisor regarding any legal or tax information as it relates to your personal circumstances. These materials are provided for general information and educational purposes based on publicly available information from sources believed to be reliable. We cannot assure the accuracy or completeness of these materials. The information in these materials may change at any time and without notice. The information contained herein is for informational purposes only, is not personalized investment advice, and should not be construed as a recommendation to purchase or sell any particular security security, sector, or strategy to any individual person or entity. Investment advice offered through Palace Capital Advisors, LLC, a registered investment advisor.